Welcome back to the Lawali Life podcast. I hope you're all doing as well as you can in either self-isolation or isolation with your loved ones. I know it can be taxing, so I'm going to be here to bring you some of the most inspiring people I know and content over the next few weeks to help keep you grounded, stress-free, and inspired and motivated during this very strange time. For those of you that haven't tuned in already, I'm Alice Law and I'm your host and founder of Lawali Life, which is my coaching practice I've set up to help stress professionals and entrepreneurs to manage, get rid of and decrease stress whilst improving their personal and professional performance. This podcast is based purely around stress and loss, which is pretty apt at this time, and it is a mixture of conversations with amazing leaders in their fields from top CEOs, neuroscientists, other coaches and practitioners, spiritual thought leaders, entrepreneurs, and more guiding you through the greatest stress and losses they've personally had to overcome, how they did it, and tips on how to get you back through yours. I have been so excited to share today's episode with you because the guest is someone who is just, he's unparalleled in his wisdom and perspective and kindness that has come out from one of the most horrific experiences you can go through as a human being. Nick Yaris is a writer and a speaker, and he was on death row for 22 years for a crime he did not commit. I mean, let that sink in in itself. 22 years for a crime he did not commit. And it was in the state of Pennsylvania where the block he was on on death row, at the time, it was legal to have active torture. So he was tortured and imprisoned wrongfully for 22 years for something he did not do. And what has come out the other side is possibly one of the kindest, most interesting, wise, unangry, incredible souls I've ever had the chance to speak to. And I just am so excited to let you guys listen to him today and just soak up all his wisdom of how he healed himself, how he got through that experience, how he's come out the person he has. And it's just such an amazing reminder that no matter what anyone's going through right now, We always have to remind ourselves that someone is going through something worse and someone is going through something better. So keeping inside that line, reminding ourselves of that keeps our humility and our grace and our perspective. And Nick Yaris is going to blow your mind. So I hope you enjoy. I'm so truly honored to have the incredible Nick Yaris with us today. Nick is a speaker and a writer, but where this all came from is just a story of such incredible hardship that he has survived and come out as the most kind and humble human being that just blows you away. I mean, Nick, you were on death row for 22 years for a crime you didn't commit. And when I first heard your story, which was on a podcast of our now mutual friend, Spencer, I honestly, I listened and watched and I just burst into tears. I'd never, never heard anything like it. And I'm just, I'm so honored to have you on the podcast today to ask you a million questions. So thank you so much for being here today and joining. And um, I'd love, love, love for you to start to just tell, you know, your story of how that happened for starters. How did you get to be on death row for the listeners that haven't heard for 22 years for a crime you did not commit? Hello, everyone. It's a real honor to obviously sit down and share another podcast opportunity because I find that each time I learn something new about what I've said 
And even before we began recording, I realized that was true again. So in succinct fashion, my life fell apart at an early age because of a childhood trauma that I experienced where I was attacked as a young boy. The assault from an adult with um, intentions of harming me left me with a brain injury. In secrecy, I let this attack ruin all of my childhood to the point that I became an alcoholic and a drug addict during my early years. I ended up in a stolen car one night in 1981, being pulled over by a police officer in the city of Chester, Pennsylvania. And in this incident, I was falsely accused of his attempted murder and kidnapping. In frustration, I went to prison facing a life sentence, knowing that it was all a lie. And I did the biggest mistake of my life at that point by making up my own lie about a murder in the area that was unsolved, trying to barter my freedom out of these false charges. The police, knowing that I had a deficiency mentally, took advantage of the situation and actually charged me with the murder, knowing that I didn't commit it, knowing that none of the evidence fit me, and then proceeded with the prosecution of the attempted murder of the police officer and the murder of a woman I never met, all based on a lie I told in jail. At the age of 20, I was taken to trial for my original charges and a jury found me not guilty of all my charges against that original arresting police officer. But by then the damage to my life had already been done in that I faced the trial now for the rape and murder of a woman who was killed locally that I made up my lie about in the hopes of bartering for my freedom that was given to me anyway by that jury. So in June of 1982, I had a three-day murder trial in which I was sentenced to die for a woman I never met in my life, and I was brutally sentenced to death and put in one of the worst prisons in America. For the next 12 years, I would endure hardships that would have broken most people because the prison I lived in and the unit I was in had a yearly survival rate of only five years. Men simply couldn't tolerate the indignities and they killed themselves in mass, died of disease or just couldn't take it anymore and lost their minds. Unfortunately or fortunately for me, however you like to look at it, in 1985, I was on the FBI's most wanted list for escaping from death row. After 25, year, 25 days on the run in that year, I turned myself back into the FBI and willingly went back to death row to face my punishment, knowing I hadn't committed this crime. It was one of the hardest decisions of my life to make, but the opposite would have been too much for me. I went back to Pennsylvania and in 1988, I became the very first man in the United States to seek DNA evidence to prove my innocence. I had no idea that at the time of my efforts began, it would take me 15 years and I would watch a hundred men walk free before that moment came. Ironically and sadly, the only reason I was allowed to have DNA testing is because I was so pushed by the state of Pennsylvania, emotionally, 
physically that I asked to be killed. I asked to be executed for a crime that I didn't commit in order to get DNA testing done. Having accomplished all of that, I also took on the burden of fighting for a fellow death row prisoner named Walter Okra, a man I had met in the cell next to me who I knew there was no possible way he was a, a guilty person. In the immediacy of my release, I went home and lived in my parents' basement in Philadelphia with a world-class education I began. Within 10 months of my release, I stood on the house of the floor of commons in England and delivered one of the most beautiful speeches ever, followed by speeches in Rome, France, Sweden, and Holland, where I beseeched the trade partners of Pennsylvania not to do business with them until they set my friend Walter Ograd free. But it had no real effect and after I had finished my tour of that first year of freedom, I kind of just drifted into this survivor's guilt. And it pushed me and tested me to stay alive, knowing that I couldn't keep my promise to my friend on death row. I couldn't offer him real help. My personal life went through ups and downs like you wouldn't believe. And when I tell people that my 16 years of freedom have been harder than all the 22 years I spent on death row, they blink in astonishment that that could be true. But here it is. In the last 16 years, I've been driven by the notion of holding on to my humanity. And it began in a death row cell after being tortured for many years, I realized I had an obligation to my parents and loved ones. I had to walk out of that cell and be something. See, I couldn't just get out and quietly go my own way. That wouldn't allow for the efforts that my parents needed in honor of what they suffered. I had to be something special, good, someone driven by a notion of purpose who wouldn't stop. So over the last 16 years of my freedom, I've done everything I could for the notion of good. And in doing so, I developed a great sense of writing to my style and speaking and I've been all over the world Right now, I'm on the cusp of beginning a project that's a documentary about my efforts to free my friend for 20 years. And with the loving support of my wife and family, I'm about to take a 3,000 mile journey across America to finish it. How it plays out really never matters to me. I realize that we always want and we always desire and we always plan and we always pray for what we need. But every time that I've witnessed all of the good things in my life, it was because it had nothing to do with my want. It came about because it was a good that was deserving or needed or whatever. So with the blessing of friendships from many years of being a kind person, I now have in my hand 
six-time Academy Award-winning director, Terry Sanders, willing to direct. I have Cooper Howard as my new editor and director of photography. And I have so many friends willing to help and support the platform once it's created on many platforms around the world. All I have to do now is tell this incredible story in detail, go to Philadelphia, meet my friend Walter and complete a mission that has just tested me. If I can do this, then I'll have done the one thing that I felt was my answer to it all. I kept my kindness. That is what everyone in life trying to steal from me, whoever did me wrong, hurt me in prison, condemned me to die or anything. They didn't want me to be a kind person after that. They couldn't stand the idea that I would be a loving and kind person after what they did to me. I mean, the most overwhelming thing about you, Nick, is your kindness. You know, that was one of the first things that struck me when we first spoke. I thought, how can someone who has been through everything you've been through still have such a kind heart and above that even be so unangry at what you have been put through? And I guess, you know, for people listening to even put it into perspective, I mean, some of the things you, you've gone through physically on death row were just the most inhumane things that anyone can be put through mentally, physically, emotionally. How did you keep yourself on the right line of kindness, on the right side of kindness when the whole world was showing you how hateful it could be? I think it had to be the determining moment. We come upon these things called the determining moment in our lives where we're faced with a situation where we have to make a decision on who we're going to be. I witnessed a riot in 1989 in Huntington Prison in which the buildings were set on fire and 200 inmates were beaten savagely by the controlling authorities once they regained control of the prison. I sat on a rolled up mattress and I watched human beings being drugged by their ankles again and again and again and again all night until there was a river of blood and urine and water in front of my cell from the bodies being drugged all night. They were stacking the bodies up like cords of wood in the exercise cages behind my very cell by only 30 feet. When I witnessed a procession of humanity that low, I thought there has to be something within me I can find to not be that. It's crazy. That was in November of 1989 well before I got out. After that episode, I began helping other prisoners. If you had a scrambled mind and you weren't capable of writing a beautiful letter to your mother, I could. And I would write these amazing letters for inmates who were heads of gangs, who had killed people or done all these things. 
And then when they got the letter back and I read it for them from their mother, sister, whoever, it made them so grateful to have someone there for them. I began then using my legal education to help get other death row prisoners off of death row while my own appeals got ruined and I suffered. It was that kind of notion that I could do some kind of good for broken-minded men that gave me my identity in prison. I was well-respected and people really went out of their way to solicit my help. And I ended up getting two men off of death row before I even got out of jail. And it's an irony of irony that one of them was sentenced to the electric chair. I got his appeals through to his attorney, correctly written, and he was released from death row and put into general population, only to be electrocuted on his own toilet accidentally a couple years later. Oh my God. I know. So it was like, this strange world that I lived in where things like that were real. Meanwhile, I endured one of the worst experiences for three years of my life that became this brand new book, Monsters and Madmen. For three years, I had one man try to torture me or have me murdered by serial killers and cannibals. He sicked them on me every chance he got. When I was vulnerable in the shower, he would open their doors and let them come at me with weapons. The only way I overcame his tyranny was I allowed this man to crush my hand in a metal door so that the damage done to me physically was so bad they couldn't put handcuffs on me. And that, ironically, was my deed that got me transferred into the prison alongside of Walter Ograd in 1999. And from that moment on, I became his champion. So all I had to do was suffer for a little bit, endure some indignities and let somebody hurt me so that I could become the answered prayer for another man. And I, I get it, man. I prayed and I tried. I wrote to all of the innocence projects and they ignored me. When I got out, I went to work for them and helped them. I told them about water and still they ignored me. For 16 years, not one innocence project has helped me out here with his case. The only one who finally listened was the district attorney's prosecutor in Philadelphia who watched a program on television that I sacrificed my effort to let water have. I'm not bitter and I don't hold disparities against people who won't help me. I just know that I was chosen to be the answered prayer of another man. And when you are chosen in such a way, you don't let this appointment make you bitter. And you don't use this to become personalized 
in anger at these organizations who couldn't spit on me. I watch as people like Kim Kardashian and um, all these many people do all this amazing work and not one ounce of envy. I have nothing to say in a negative because they're doing good. Just because they won't help me, why should I be then negative? Aren't I the exact person they should then avoid? Because I'm false. So I realized I wasn't going to get help at times for this. And I realized my sacrifices at times were going to feel empty. And then I realized it was going to be down to me to find a way to learn a lesson from all this for myself, regardless of anyone else. So I'm not doing this for this documentary. I'm not doing this to lead this beautiful opus message of my making this documentary. I'm doing this for me. Because I looked Walter in the face and I said, I swear to God, I'll be back. Wow, Nick. I mean, I really want to get into yours and Walter's relationship as well and that whole story. But before, I would love to just know, for example, I mean, how did you hold on to hope and faith with God or spirituality at that time? Was that something you had going in? Was it something you developed there? Was it something that you now have? Or what is that relationship for you? Oh, I was so angry at God, I used to beat my head on a wall in ignorance. And then, oddly enough, there was a period of my life where I spent three years reading all of the world's religions because at that time, I had just turned myself in from escape and all my appeals were ruined and I had 105 years plus the death penalty, so I was going to die there. So I thought, if I'm going to die here, I want to know the answer. So I spent three incredible years reading all of the world's religion, reading the Quran right to left three times, everything. And then at the end of that period, I got handed a newspaper about DNA evidence. And the next thing you know, Sir Alec Jeffries, who invented DNA testing in Leicestershire, England, and I are pen pals for the next 12 years. So I didn't have to believe in God. I just needed to accept that people believe in God. And I need to respect that. You get the point? How could I denigrate you as a Hindu Muslim when I know nothing of your religion? I've made no effort to learn anything about you, but yet I'm willing to say negative things about you because I've read one thing. And I felt that was lacking. How could I truly respect anyone if I don't know what they believe? Now, I realize I am a composite of spirituality because in reality, E equals MC squared. Energy never dies. We are a proven energy. I don't know the answer to where my energy goes. But I do know I have control over making this energy pliable, sweet, and loving so that when it does pass, hopefully it catches on to something good. I have no other answer. And I really respect everyone 
who wants to believe in religiosity and their belief systems and spirituality because the number one healing feature in life is prayer. Prayer and music tap into the core of your cerebrum and you release all of this neuroplasticity healing. Amazing. Music, healing prayer, interactions with animals, children, doing kind deeds are your healing. That's your church. And it's so apparent in every religion that they're mostly driven for the idea of good, not tyranny. Man interprets, get it? And in its interpretation, a lot of times it's personalized to the current. What we interpreted of our religions 500 years ago, we no longer interpret now. It's become my own personal Jesus. And that's a shame because when you personalize something, you realize only what you think about in your life in terms of what matters to you. Your generosity ends there. When you realize someone has a prayer going in their life right now while their last moment is before them, you're not so cavalier then, but you can't feel it until it's you. And so that's why I really made that effort. I think the thing that kept me going wasn't that I was struck by God's gift only in the sense of the DNA being handed to me as a reward for reading all the world's religions. I thought it was my understanding of respect for religion. And if I can respect you, no matter what your beliefs are, I can overcome our differences. Yeah, I mean, that's just amazing. It's um, talking about the lack of ignorance, which I think so many people get caught up in when thinking about God and religion, and like you say, just not educating them to others' beliefs and just only being steadfast that their way is the highway. <laughs> That's the only way. And really, spirituality is all-inclusive, and I just think it's so beautiful what you said. It's so, so profound. But thinking about, okay, everything you've been through, I mean, the stress and the loss of freedom, everything, what would you say because I ask this for everyone who comes on the podcast and I can't actually imagine what your answer will be. What is the greatest stress or loss out of all of that that you went through that you would say is the greatest loss or stress? Hmm. Honestly, I know this is going to be hard to understand. I have no losses from what I went through on death row because succinctly, I took so much good with me. In truth, I always tell people, being on death row and being in solitary confinement for 23 years of my life was the greatest experience of my life. It taught me my humanity. It gave me my compassion. It allowed me to grow while all of my childhood friends and both of my brothers are now dead. I'm grateful. A grateful person cannot sit here and tell you what the greatest loss of their life is because 
they don't have that measurement. I'm sorry to disappoint you, but everything that I went through hasn't had that effect to me that I can sit there and say what the greatest loss is because I've achieved so much from it. In the last three years alone, I've saved over a thousand lives from watching me on Joe Rogan's podcast, Broken Men. Even today, I got messages again. And this is why I can't do that. What loss? I'm alive. I'm functioning. I have a loving marriage, wonderful children, great friendships, a purpose in life. What loss? What did I lose some time? Ah, oh, but that was the transition there. Alice, while everyone thinks I had time stolen from me, I gave myself a world-class education. How can I then measure that as a loss? I've read more books than most people in a lifetime, and I've made an effort to develop a great sense of writing, a dynamic speaking ability, platforms that can carry me in life. Where's my loss? So, sorry. No, don't be sorry. I knew you'd have an interesting answer. That's all I wanted to ask you. And that it would be different to everyone who's come on the podcast. So it's I incredible. I can't. I can't sit there and say the greatest loss is this or that. I have a long way to go or not. But to this date, I swear to God, the only thing I truly kind of regret is not being nicer sooner. Wow. Well, I mean, you're definitely making up for it now, that's for sure, if you were not nice before. <laughs> but, I mean, how did you hold on to, okay, hope at that time? Because if you have a looming hope death train. sentence... Oh, my God, that's a terrible one, the hope train. All right, folks. You board the hope train paying a fare with your dreams and desire. You ride along never knowing where the destination is but your hope is guiding you. I got on the hope train in 1988 as the first man in America asked for DNA testing. And I rode it until 2003 when I asked to be executed. I understand how hard it is, how tenuous the feeling to find hope, want hope, need hope. It is a dance we do in life one that is very complex, based on our ego, our needs, and our wants. Our best hopes are for those of us wanting to help others and be there for others. The worst hopes are our ego-driven ones that blind us to what we shouldn't be doing, but we do it anyway. I've managed to deal with my hopes like a nuggly ego. I don't overburden myself with my hopes and I'm generous with others for theirs. If you can be that fair in life, it's a real balance. You'll find that you cut yourself a slack from being driven mad by what your hopes mean. And I'm trying. I think the best thing about me is I'm only 16 years old in this world and I'm still willing to hold myself accountable as a teenager learning in that fashion. If I can grow and develop 
then I live my message more and more that I can share with people. And it's important to people who will listen to me because if they see me not willing to learn, grow and develop, how can I possibly get through to them? Yeah, God, I mean, learning and developing, for example, when you were there, what was your sort of learning and development practice that got you through everything, that kept your mind strong, that kept you, well, made you the way you are now? What was that experience for you? They broke my face. So after the escape, they beat me for four minutes and kicked my face in with steel cap boots. So I couldn't bring myself to look at me. It was really difficult to find that will. So I developed a strategy where I wanted to keep being able to encourage myself. So I had this lovely photograph of myself at the age of 17, holding up an enormous fish I caught in Pennsylvania on the river. I placed that photograph on the wall and I began to learn how to speak politely to that person, knowing he was my hero. He had to get me through this. Somehow I had to learn to speak to him so that I could speak for myself. When you're pushed to that kind of extreme, it becomes so important to understand something. What you say and how you say it truly has a profound effect on others. But if you can teach yourself that what you say and how you say it has a profound effect on you, you become driven to live that. That's the difference in me. I wasn't trying to convince another person that my sincerity was on offer. I was convincing myself that I love myself in the most sincere way by believing this one person and wanting him to know the kindness within me, the, the goodness within me, the offer I had of love for this person. I think that's incredible that you say that because self-love and you know talking well to ourselves, it's something that's talked about a lot in this industry and some people just shun it thinking it can't possibly be that important, but it truly is. You know, It's the only continual conversation we'll have for our whole lives is the one with ourselves. A good friend of mine said to me, you know, you do realize throughout your whole life, you're talking to yourself. It's just a matter of whether or not someone gave you the respect at that moment to hear what you meant. I learned how to hear what I meant and give myself the self-respect that I needed to develop. It's strange. You can watch people. They will go out of their way to call themselves idiot, asshole, fool, all these things over and over immediately upon making a small error and vociferously would attack someone else for doing it. We have a difficulty and I think it's because we've been conditioned to do so, to truly express self-love without it being flexing. The shame of a lot of the parts of the negative parts of social media is that instead of flexing kindness, we're flexing wealth. 
activity. Mm. The really difficult part is how does it translate? How do you translate your kindness to acts of good without it being about money and exchanges of good or good deeds? How about you show yourself how much you care about yourself in the way that you treat yourself? Because that's the most sincerest form of an example of good. So it's a strange and very difficult message to get through to people that if you really want to be there for others, you have to love yourself. There's no possible way you can offer anything sincere if inside you're a mess. You're going to let so many people down. So that, that realization then comes to the point, yeah, well, how do I fix that? How does that work? How about you actually make a point of talking to yourself nicely instead of negatively? We have that internal voice we love to use to batter ourselves and berate ourselves, put ourselves in a mindset that we're being castrated or castigated or put down for what we shouldn't have done. We're so quick to do it. Alice, how many times have you found yourself saying, oh, you idiot? Right. But how many times have you said just as passionately, oh, you brilliant person, that's lovely. How sweet of you to think that way for another person. You never say it. You do it. You know it's a good feeling inside to do it, but you've never actually heard yourself say, wow, that is so kind and thoughtful. I'm very proud of you for being the person you are. I did that. And it gave me this tremendous sense of the identity of me being able to have perspective on myself. And there's where we lose a lot of our connections. Our perspectives are out of whack. Our perspective of the situation are out of whack. So you reign in your ego, you get your shit together, you start speaking kindly to yourself and you watch as you develop a kinder sense about who you are because you enjoy inside what you're giving yourself, then you don't want to lose it. it. becomes very addictive, and there is the basis for neuroplasticity healing. And I wish I could teach so many people about this because we need this now more than ever. I was so proud of you for going out during Mental Health Week and di- touching on different aspects of the deterioration of our mental health. But people really don't have a genuine sense of what to do about it without it being related to social activity. How do I, how do I heal? How am I possibly going to do anything in a cell or a house or a building where I'm isolated? Mm. I know the answer and it's a really cool way of doing it, but it takes practice like an athlete. But when you're good at it, your charisma develops. People would like to know how I could go from death row to the United Nations in Geneva on stage with the president of Switzerland, wowing the Human Rights Council. How do you make that mental transition? Like, how is that possible to be the guy in the orange jumpsuit on death row, suffering and being broken to this eloquent, beautiful speaker in a different form? Like, how is that possible? And I try to tell people, I didn't 
change. My circumstances changed. I was able to love myself enough there when it was hard so that when I had my opportunity, it blossomed. And there's the work that we won't put in. There's the problem with a lot of people struggling with their ego. They won't put the work in now while it's tough. They won't be nice to themselves. And they expect later on when we come out of all this, they're going to be okay. It doesn't work that way. So I'm very grateful that I'm getting a chance with Briar Prestige to start my marketing and branding and do virtual speaking because the number one thing that our species needs now more than ever is emotional healing. Emotional healing comes along with our spiritual development and these things can be accomplished now by simply practicing neuroplasticity-based behaviors. It took me so many years to figure out why I knew I was right inside. Like, it's crazy. You know, all of this began with a promise to my mother when I got out that I'd just be a nice man. She said that would make us even for all of her tears and prayers, right? And that if I didn't do this, I would be a waste of hers, you know? So then I learned about neuroplasticity healing from Robin Sharma. And I realized there was a whole field of study about the reward system in our brains driven by kindness. Its ability to overcome PTSD is real. I've been shot, stabbed, strangled, run over by a car, two drug overdoses, and I hung myself in prison. Lived around murderers and cannibals for 23 years and was openly tortured for many of those years. I suffered degradations and physical ailment to the point that I asked to be executed. I then got out and endured utter hardship from being all of the devastations those things could heap upon me and the challenge of rebuilding my life. And I've excelled. Why have I had the ability to excel where that circumstance would seemingly break person after person? Because of this amazing gift humans have of neuroplasticity healing. Amazing. And all I had to do was practice meticulous kindness. I mean, it's just incredible because also just to make a point to people listening, if people are thinking, well, you know, maybe you just got loads of compensation when you were out. Nick got no compensation from the state. It's not in Pennsylvania, no financial compensation for all the hardship he'd been through his life was not easy when he came out of death row and so if he believes that and knows that neuroplasticity and kindness can heal all the things that he's been through then you really need to listen to him because it's just Alice, how many people you know with money are miserable i mean a lot <laughs> so it's not all right this is the great thing neuroplasticity is not relative to wealth it is not relative to stature, religion. It is something we can all really develop. That's why I was so keen to start teaching this because it allowed me to step away from the crime genre and penology parts of my life to expand upon what I see that worked for me is real. Now, I'm not putting out guru type of diets I'm not trying to be your life coach. I'm trying to tell you, you have every strength and capability I have, but you have to just be 
one thing, a nice per person, a true nice, half the time nice, not part of the time nice, not willing to be nice to others, but not nice to you. I mean, you have to be nice, kinder than love, harder than life. And it's tough. So how do you get there? Well, we are trainable. We are these beautiful athletes who can pirouette and do amazing things when we train our body. When you train your brain in neuroplasticity healing, within only a short time, you will notice a real difference because of your strengths, your ability to handle stresses, your ability to handle chaos, loss, financial ruin. A happy person doesn't really have to have anything, and it's proven in children raised with nothing. They wouldn't know what wealth is, so why would it bother them? So that reality is our ego tells us how upset we have to be for lack of sustenance and all these things. Right now, I am in serious financial trouble. I have overwhelming bills. I had to go on the internet and ask for help recently. I have nothing. But what does that have to do with me? What does that have to do with my relationship with my loving wife or my caring children or my friends? Those people who need me, they don't need me to come out of my house and spread my sorrow and infect them with it because that's my energy if I so choose. Whereas if I go out and I continue to be focused on the efforts of good that I'm doing, the purpose within me overrides every bit of it. That's why I'm able to break brand new documentary underway. Today, good efforts are being made to further my film. Today, I'm going to keep pushing because at the end of the day, before I close my eyes laying next to my loved ones, I want to ask myself and know the answer. What good have I done today? I love that. That was Walt Whitman. Was it? Yeah. yeah. At Did the you... end of thy day, lie there and ask thyself, upon thee, what good have I done this day? I think it's the best question you can ask at the end of your day. Yeah, man. When you think of, um, okay, death now, for example, beforehand you had a death sentence that was out of your own control and now you're back in life and you're in the same reality as everyone where we don't know when death's coming. Do you see death in a different way now than you did then? I'll do this with a straight face because I respect you so much. But you and I are living under a death sentence right now. You have no appeal process unless you're into the medical situation where you're hopeful of a medical relief. But as we go through our days, just like the 60,000 people who died yesterday, we believe this is our life to live while living the death sentence. And that was my gift from death row. I've, I've learned how to truly live from being told about what was obvious to me anyway. They were trying to truncate my life and take it from me. I was trying to prolong it and enrich it. I think I'll keep on that notion. <laughs> so while I know that I live with a death sentence given to me at birth, not from a court, this one I have control over in my days for how I want to live. 
and what I want to do with these days before I give up my energy. So I'm hoping that I do the right thing and focus primarily on what matters ahead, knowing that I have no control anyway over all that. It's going to come. We are going to face this. Hello, Marmite. <laughs> Sweet dog. <laughs> now we have a cat. Oh, hey. <laughs> so Ruby is in love with Marmite, who's in love with Ruby. Okay. Cats and dogs are sweet. Yeah, they love each other. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I've well, this is one of the best things is knowing that these are healing features in my life. Mm. Yeah, and uh, I saw all of the studies on animal interactions and the healings in hospital studies and such, and it's true. So that's why a lot of our effort have been to keep all of these healing features alive in our lives. Caring for others is caring for yourself by default. Yeah. Yeah. And we noticed this in a lot of women. This is one of my messages to women. If you can care for one of your best friends where you are her diehard go-to girl, you need to do that for yourself because you're letting yourself down by not being that for you. And a lot of women can't do it. They're so good at building up their best friend, but they can see every flaw, every facet they don't like about themselves because they've been taught to be carers outside of themselves. Yeah? Mm, it's difficult. Whereas men were hardwired not to get caught up in this emotional aspect of such caring other than providing. If we can't resolution it oriented, driven to a, a finality of fixing this thing, then we're upset. Or we got to provide and, and sustenance. You know, that's how. But for us to develop that other side of caring as men, we're seen as wishy-washy or weakening ourselves. When in fact, I've become the strongest possible person by doing it. If you would have told me at the age of 20 that balling up my fist and bullying my way through life was the way to go, I would have wholeheartedly agreed with you. But if you told me that by being pliant and kind and sweet was going to take me much further, I'd have thought you lost your mind because nobody won in my world by being nice. But I didn't recognize what the winning was. I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? Like you say, it's uh, it's such a like juxtaposition. People think that that way, for example, the overtly, overly masculine sort of trying to get through everything that way, aggressiveness can win when actually just allowing ourselves a space to be kind, to live with ease, to be kind to ourselves and kind to others. It's like the greatest change agent, as you say, almost kindness. One of the things that struck me was reading the world's religions and I came upon this Native American passage and it said, upon your gift of life, you are giving so many heartbeats. How you use those heartbeats is up to you. If you run through life in a fury, you burn up all of your heartbeats and wasted anger. But if you learn to harness love, you pace your heartbeats the longest. 
I love that. Yeah, it's cool, man. I, like I thought about it, man. Your heart is only going to beat so many times. What do you want? I used to think about it. I want my heartbeats to matter, man. Not to be wasted in anger, wasted in thought. All those heartbeats you have in your chest while you're pissed off, while you're ranting, while you're going through, gone. No meaning to any of those beats. And yet they're all gone. You don't get them back. So if you don't mind, I think I'm gonna try my best to learn every day something new about myself, try my best to not waste my heartbeats in anger because I only have so many left and to realize the truest way to make myself super strong is to be polite and respectful to someone like you because my brain is feeding me all of this wonderful gift regardless of your response. Pretty badass. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, speaking of things that matter, you are doing this incredible, incredible thing, incredible work for Walter. So for those listening, Walter Ogrod, you met on death row. What was it about him when you met him that you just thought, I have to help this guy and I know he's innocent? I had just been transferred to a new prison. I just was still in the process of healing from having my hand shattered. I didn't want any trouble. But I have a man put in a cell next to me. And when I realized the true extent of this horror, it just overwhelmed me. Walter Ogra was sleeping at home in Philadelphia when his house was broken into by two men. They stabbed his brother Gregory, nearly killing him, killed Gregory's fiance. Walter goes to the police station to give a statement about this case. The next thing you know, police have convinced him to confess to the murder of a little girl who's been murdered on his street and left in a TV box like garbage. Walter is taken to trial. A jury finds him not guilty. One of the jurors has a sinister idea of making Walter pay for the crimes done to a member of his family that had nothing to do with this situation. So he blurts out that the other jurors forced him to say Walter was not guilty so that they could retry him. They bring in and hire jailhouse informants. Walter is convicted in a second trial and sentenced to death row. And he ends up on death row with the two men who tried to murder his brother. Not only that, but they're right across the cell block from him, torturing him, playing games with him when I get there. At first, I didn't know what to think of it. There in the cell was a man who only had one lament. They lied about his mother not caring about him. He never mentioned being convicted of murder, never went into it, never cared. The only thing that hurt him is they lied about his mother. So it struck me. How could this person with a developmental issue, not very complex of thought, how could he go out and outwit the entire law enforcement community by committing a very complex crime and then go back to being this person? 
doesn't work. It doesn't fit. You have to be cunning and deceitful and devious and, and planning. The guy next to me ain't that. When that realization struck, I went across the block to the other men that were torturing him. And I told them if they ever bothered Walter again, I was gonna turn their face to mush. Then I went and I got Walter's transcripts from him and I started writing to his lawyer cogent and coherent letters so he could then help Walter in his appeals. An author came along named Tom Lowenstein and wanted to write a book about my fantastic story. And I beseeched him instead to help Walter. Then when I asked to be executed, I had to give it all back and tell Walter, I'm sorry. Then when the DNA evidence came back and I was being set free, I got a chance to see him one last time. And I told him, I don't care what I got to do, man. I'll be back for you. I meant it, you know? So I got out and like you told your listeners, with nothing, still being sick from hepatitis C infection, I went home and into my parents' basement where my brother died of a drug overdose where I lived. And I began this enormous battle for Walter Ograd and another man named Ernie Simmons. And I ended up speaking in five European countries and giving one of the most beautiful speeches of my life in England before parliament. And then after all that effort, nothing happened. And I endured some of the worst survivor's guilt ever to the point that it almost made me kill myself. I was devastated that I couldn't help this man. Devastated that he was still in there being tortured. Devastated to know that the inmates around him were probably mocking him, thinking that I quit on him. Death Row stories came along in America, a very popular story about death row. And in, 19, in 2014, they wanted me to be featured on their show. And I said, no. Being the only man ever to turn them down, I did so for Walter. And he got his opportunity in season three, episode four of this series. And there, the district attorney's office in Philadelphia took notice of his case and began investigating their own conviction. All the Innocence Projects wouldn't help me. No journalist would help me. It took a district attorney by the name of Larry Krasner to have the integrity to say, this man ain't, this man ain't guilty. We got it wrong. Yeah, Walter Ograd is innocent and we got it wrong. The mother of the victim is right now pleading for his release. She's angry that Walter was forced to confess to the murder of her little girl, but she doesn't want him to suffer because it's not him. The, <coughs> the DNA evidence came back in 2019. It doesn't match Walter. The only person refusing to let Walter out of prison is the former prosecutor who put him on death row is now the judge handling his appeal. And this woman is sinister. So we've been applying pressure and applying pressure, and he has a hearing on June 5th. My goal 
is with my incredibly supportive wife, I'm going to drive across America with our two girls. We're going to go see Walter when he gets out of prison. And I'm going to complete my mission because that would be my loss if I wasn't this man. So that's what I got, Alice. A mission to complete that's going to be very hard, but rewarding if I can pull it off. With the help of Terry Sanders, six-time Academy Award-winning director, I have an opportunity. If I can just get funding, I should be okay. I have editorial help, filming help, promotional help. I just got to get this effort in. So somehow, some way, in the next few days, I'm going to make an incredible journey across America. And that's my hope. I just... It is incredible. I mean, that whole story is just, it's mind boggling. I think to people listening, you just can't really get your head around the fact that that even goes on, let alone the fact that the person that's now having to fight or wanting to fight to free a man is someone who's been through it themselves. And it's just the whole, the whole story, the whole system is just so completely broken. It's just so- once. I can only say that about a handful of people in my life, but Walter Ograd never once ever lied to me. So my friend who is innocent on death row is welcome into my house to play with my children, even though he's been convicted of killing a little girl. I wouldn't blink. I love him. I care about him. And I've never stopped being his friend I just couldn't help him more. I mean, you definitely are that answered prayer for him. I mean, you're such a light to everyone, Nick, but that's just, it's incredible. I'm trying, man. It's hard, Alice. I know it's been a push and I'm so grateful to have the people around me that I do because you can't do this alone, man. Superman needs someone else. That's not reality. I don't care who you are in life. You didn't feed yourself until you were like five or six, man. So you needed someone then and you need someone now. If you're ignorant of that, that need, you can never truly be able to help others. And that's a shame. I love the fact that I've been handed this enormous task, but I've been given so many wonderful friends, loving people around me. It's like, it's all meant to be somehow, man, crazy. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's like your fated journey. It's incredible. But um, for people actually, I'd love, one question I'd love to ask you because you've read so much. <laughs> what is one book that's changed your life more than anything? The Prophet by Khalil Gibran. Al Mustafa, the chosen, the main character, at the end of a 12-year journey in a walled city, is leaving. Upon his leaving, he shares with everyone all of these beautiful messages. That book became my touchstone with who I wanted to be every year as I read it as a Christmas present to myself in December of every year. So... I love that. Yeah, man, that's pretty cool, ain't it? I'm going to read that, definitely. Yeah. Um, 
his his whole family perished in the years that he wrote that book. The book was written in like 1921, 22, and 23, while Khalil Gibran traveled back and forth between Lebanon and the United States trying to hold down the family farm. <coughs> Even though his entire family nearly died of tuberculosis, he then went on to write this beautiful book. God, how amazing. So yes. I really am grateful for this chance, Alice. I really am. And I'm looking forward to trying in the next few days to get all of this done. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, I just so hope you do. I have something to finish and ask you. I have a friend who's a very good friend of mine and he had watched your documentary. He's one of my best friends. And he was like, oh my God, I can't believe you're interviewing him. I'm, you know, he's a massive fan of yours. And so I said, you know, I'd ask you to give a shout out to him, but to make it beneficial to everyone, Alexis is a guy who's 30. What would you say to a 30-year-old man right now that's the advice you could give from someone who's experienced so much, has so much wisdom? What would you say to anyone like Alexis who's just 30 and is just starting this new part of their life? And what's your wisdom you can impart to the listeners and him? First and foremost, Alexis, if you are that kind of a nice person that you wanted to connect with me, you're already on the right side. All I need from you is to beat me at everything I'm doing. You have youth on your side and you have capabilities. You have a chance to do everything I'm doing by further. And that's what I want. I want, don't emulate just me. Emulate every good person in your life and then take it further. So whatever you see me do, steal the shit out of it and take it further. Yeah, I mean, make it your own version, but that's what all of, I, I ask all of my brothers, when I meet them, they've saw me on Joe Rogan, sent me a message or Facebook or Twitter, whatever they've done, I ask them to go further, man. Like, take it further. Go and, okay, you, you like what I've done? Then be even more badass, because you're younger than me. Be even more badass than I was. You don't have the disadvantages of someone beating your head in with a rock or doing things to you as a child. Be better than me. Be stronger than me. Beat me. Right? I want a thousand Alexes out there. Alexis, sorry. I want a thousand. <laughs> I want you, Alexis. I want you to be a thousand times stronger than me. I want you to try and see your life as the gift that your parents and grandparents and everybody else was praying for. And then take that gift further. If you can do that for me, you'll be exactly what I hope to find out here. Every good man. I love that. That's so powerful. Oh. Dude, so true. I got to get these young soldiers to turn towards the good. Yeah. I mean, just amazing. Okay, so to finish, what's one intention or mantra or sentence or whatever that you try to live by daily that keeps you on the right track? Pretty easy. I'm harder than life, but I'm kinder than love. Do you know what that means? That means when you're going through hell, like Churchill said, just keep going. But I also say, bring love with you, man. 
Don't let love be taken from you and be kinder than your concept of love because you're going to need it. If you can have a balance in life where you are harder than life and kinder than love, you're going to be that person everybody wants around when the things go badly. You're going to be that one person that everyone wants around when they need uplifting. I just think that's a, it's a, I've heard you write that before and I just think it's such a beautiful, beautiful phrase and it's an incredible one to live by. Nick, it's been so amazing having you on today. Truly such an honor. You are genuinely just such an incredible light and strength for so many. And I've just it's been such an honor getting all your wisdom and talking to you about your experiences and what you, I really hope to achieve with Walter over the next month because. No, I saw what you were doing. I had a lot of respect that you were trying very valiantly to put out a very positive message. And I told you, I had my hands full with doing Jean-Claude Van Damme's podcast and all these things. But as soon as I could, I would do this. And I thought it was very important to keep my word to you. And especially since in the face of your grace to help me with author and other people you've introduced me to, it's really important to show back how much that matters. So if you think about it, take a lap because your own integrity has shown to be genuine. A lot of people don't do that. They seek what they need and they'll make no effort. And they don't think that there's an insult there. that's so true well thank you so 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 much no that's all right have a good day my best you and your family for now take care okay you too see you bye Well, I really hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did with the incredible Nick Yaris and had your perspective shifted and your mind blown. I'd love to say, be able to tell you, which I now can, that since recording that episode, Nick travelled across country like he said he was going to and was able to finally see Walter released from death row, which Nick has been fighting for for so many years since he left. And when he told me that after we spoke after the episode, um, I was so so incredibly even more in awe of him and so happy for him that all his efforts towards such an incredible incredible thing had actually paid off and it was just amazing he's now trying to get a documentary made of Walter's story so I hope we can all stay tuned for that and see it soon and if you are enjoying the Lawali Life podcast then please hit subscribe and download all the episodes so I can continue to bring you more incredible guests like him from around the world and help you through your own stresses and losses. Stay tuned.